I had a coach in high school. Anyone play high school sports? Just a slip of hands. A good amount of people, high school sports. So that was like a huge thing. I grew up in, like sports were life for my family. But I get to high school and I have this coach. His name's Coach Mike Sands. And this guy, he's just, right, he's this man's man. And I say that, don't, don't get me, like, oh, he's being stereotypical. I'm just saying like in the, the realm of what you would think of, if you were to close your eyes and think, man's man, that was this guy kind of just puffed up chest, broad shouldered. He had like gray lines that only went like just here. Like he controlled where he went gray. Like it was, it was phenomenal, right? Like um, he didn't drink from straws. Like he was just like in every stereotypical way, like he was just a man's man as you would kind of stereotype typically, as you see in mass media and all that stuff, kind of think of that idea. And he was very intense. So on the football field, it was always, Garvey, right? Just much, much deeper than my squealy voice, right? <laughs> Garvey, you know? And, and it usually be followed with like, why are you always joking around, right? Uh, and I'd say, sorry, coach, and he'd make me do push-ups or something. But he was just very serious, very earnest, and demanded respect. And guess what? He got it because he was the mighty sovereign ruler of our football team. And so whatever he said went, and that's just the way that we understood it. If it was in the weight room, if it was on the field, like we listened to Coach Sands. But I'll never forget this one moment where all of a sudden it's at the end of practice because you know, if you guys ever had one of like a close friend that makes you do more stuff than you'd want to, uh, like he, uh, my buddy Matt was always, hey, let's stay after and continue to work out like after practice. And I was like, that's foolishness, like let's go home or let's go eat, right? Uh, and so no, he's like, let's stay after. So we stayed after and we finally for the first time saw Coach Sands leave the school. And his family came to pick him up. And it was amazing because as they pull up, Coach sees his family and his little kid comes out and opens the door and sprints to her dad, Coach Sands, jumps into his arms, and I see this tough, rugged, manly man embrace his child, hug her, kiss her, embrace her, and tell her how much she loves her. And my paradigm and understanding of Coach Sands was shattered forever. How could this guy, who's always on us, be this loving, be this caring, be kneeling down to his daughter's level to embrace her, hold her up, and tell her all these sweet things that he'd never say to us, which it makes sense, okay? <laughs> like, I didn't have a context to understand him that way. And here's, here's what we're doing in this Advent series. If you were with us last week, like we're studying these four names of God in Isaiah chapter 9. That Isaiah says that Jesus, this son, would be born. As we celebrate in Advent that Jesus has come, these four names, that he is wonderful counselor. And last week we looked, he is mighty God, all-powerful, all-sovereign. He's the ruler. He's on top. He makes the decisions, and he rules from on high. And today we see he is an everlasting father. We, we get to see this, this tenderness to the life of Jesus, this, this father peace to the life and the person of Christ that I think we often miss. I, I think like we think of Christ as Savior. I think that gets in there pretty easy. I think when we talk about well, Jesus is God fairly often, but man, Jesus, he's fatherly. And so we're going to break that down today, and that's the goal as we go through these. Now, I want to say something on the front end. Every time we start talking about fatherhood, and the word father comes up, there's always going to be people in the room with which that's a trial, with which that's a struggle. And, and, and that's real, and that's honest, and that's important to know. Um, there's people in this room this morning that when you hear father, 
It elicits thoughts and emotions of brokenness and pain and abuse. Um, For some of you, it's a father who was never there. For some of you, it's a father who, you know what, he was present, but really not present, even when he was present. Right, for some of you, the act of just hearing this idea of father, even for some of you fathers in the room, begins to kind of cause you to sweat a little bit. Your hands clam up a little bit because you begin to think through like, man, I can't measure up. And I just want to say to you this morning, like, none of that is the point. Like, like this idea, like, you don't need to measure yourself up to Jesus this morning. The idea is not become more like this. It's believe that you need this and experience this and know you have the relationship with this so that you have an opportunity to try and live likewise. Now, again, for those of you who would experience some, some pain or brokenness when you hear these words or thoughts, I just I want to tell you my desire then for you is not, not to say that your experience and those emotions are not valid because they very much are, but to say even in the midst of that, I hope to craft a picture for you of a father that is far greater than anything you could have even hoped or desired in the midst of that pain because that's who Christ is. Okay? That, that's what he's done, and so that's what we're going to try and look at today. So let me say this on the front end, and then we're going to jump into the text. Last thing, I've been blessed with a really great dad. Right? So I, I, I speak and I preach kind of from that context. My, my pops was always there. There was a season in my life where he was, he was the stay-at-home dad. My mom was out there just crushing it. And so he was at home and he was trying to learn to play Mortal Kombat. Like he didn't, right? And he was awful, you know, so he just kept punching like this. And I would just sweep him and kick him in the face and all that stuff, right? Uh, this is all a game, kids. So don't go start hitting your parrots. Um, and, and so he was there and he was present and he was with us. Um, every game against sports were just huge for, for my brother and I growing up. We did every sport imaginable. Um, and, and so he would always come to the games, but he was never the like, scream from the sidelines annoying dad, right? Uh, and if you're that guy, repent uh, and stop doing that. Your kid hates that, I guarantee it. Um, my dad was never that dad. He was just present, would always just say, hey, great job, no matter how we did. It was just a phenomenal father to be raised under. And then there was a moment as I got older even, my first time I ever preached a Sunday sermon, right? It was January 3rd, 2010. So um, almost nine years ago, I preached for the first time at what is now Redemption Tempe. And you got to say, my, my dad, he grew up Catholic, uh, still believes in God, but isn't real sure where he's at in faith and religion and all that kind of stuff. But on January 3rd, 2010, the first time I preached, he heard that was going to happen. And so my dad drove from California with my mom And they came to visit, and you have to understand, my dad, when I first became a Christian in college, I began to tell him about this new life I was living, and he literally said to me, he goes, sounds like a cult, son, right? Like, just out of concern, right? He just didn't know what was going on. He's like, you're telling people about Jesus, this sounds cultish, et cetera, et cetera. And so January 3rd, 2010, I finish up the sermon, and guys, like, uh, I don't think I'm great now, but it was terrible, Okay. Like, it was so bad from the minute I started speaking to the last minute, just sweat poured from my head. And you know, sometimes I just get heated here, and sometimes, but it was just like nervous sweat. I'm trembling for 40 minutes, which was about 37 minutes longer than I should have gone. Um, it was just super bad. And I get off the stage, and I see my dad, and my dad's crying. And my dad says to me, he goes, like, again, doesn't believe probably a word I said. He says, I'm so proud of you, right? And I'm like, 
Like that moment, like if, you know, if I'm in a corner right now, I'm crying. Like it's just, it has that type of impact. What does the Father say about me? Okay, and so again, purpose and hope for today. What does the everlasting Father Jesus say about his people? What does he speak over you this morning? And, and with that truth then, what does that mean for the church? What are we to go forth and do with that? when we feel that type of security. So that's, that's the vision, that's the hope today. So again, let me read Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. We'll kind of run through everlasting Father on face value, and then we're going to look at some other texts in Isaiah that get us deeper. So Isaiah 9, 6 says, For us a child is born, for us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. There's a couple things. First, what it's not saying, this is not a, uh, you don't go to this, this, uh, this verse for the Trinity. Okay, so if you're saying you're trying to prove the Trinity exists in Scripture, uh, I would say this is not necessarily the direction. So it's not saying like kind of capital F Father that Jesus is the Father, Father, Son, Spirit. If you're new to the church or kind of new to this whole thing, when we say Trinity, and I'm not going to try and explain it too much because in some ways I'll do a terrible job over a doctrine that's very difficult, but here was what we believe. That God is one, there is one Godhead, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Son being Jesus, the Spirit being the one that indwells the believer now that came at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And so here's the vision of what we get in Everlasting Father, is not Jesus is the Father, the first person of the Trinity, but rather he is fatherly, like the Father is fatherly. Okay, that's what we're going for. The second part to this is what do we think it's saying is more that he's revealing that to us. And so look, excuse me, let's look at some text. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. He being Jesus. John 6.45 and 46, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. So if you want to see the Father in heaven, you look at Jesus. John 14, 9 through 11. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father is in me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If you want to know what the Father looks like, you look at Jesus. We study Jesus, we read about Jesus, we learn about Jesus, we spend time, we pray to Jesus, we talk to Jesus. If we want to see what the Father is like, we look at the life, the action, the character of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's what we do. And so what we see here, this everlasting, is revealing to us his fatherly nature as given through the Father who is also God. That's the goal. So the couple things that we already learned about him, and I'm going to give us, I think there's ten, nine or ten things about uh, Jesus as Father that I think just are great things that we should know. And my hope is this, don't get focused on any one of the nine. My hope is that our heart moves towards a greater worship of this being who he is. Jesus is the perfect Father for all of humanity. So the first couple things we learn is one, that he's always fathering us, okay? He's everlasting. So even our earthly fathers, even the best ones, and I love my pop, he's 72, I'm hoping we get like 20 more years with him, right? But the reality is, is it's seasonal, 
Okay, he, he's not probably going to be here until my kids get really old. He probably won't be here until I get really old. That's just the reality of our fathers that exist in this world, that they are seasonal fathers. They, they play a role in our lives, but then they move on. They, sometimes here, it, honestly, and this is just a good word for some of the college students who so are here, some parents are like, no, I'm done, Father, you move out of my house. Like, that's just also a reality. And so fathers in this world, but no, 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 Jesus, the everlasting father, is always that, always and forever. And hear me, it's not just longevity, but I want you to focus on what that means for the reality right now. I think that what that means is that Jesus cares about every second of your life. That the everlasting Father doesn't mean that just he'll be around for your entire life fathering us. It means that in every moment of every day, he is present and fathering you. That he cares about every aspect of your life, every second that you breathe and act. Jesus is there, always fathering. The second thing I think we learn is that Jesus shows us God. Like any good father should point their children to the Father, to God, Jesus does the same, that in his very being, he shows us what the Father is like. These are both beautiful things. Now, we could have done, I think, a somewhat systematic approach to fatherhood in the scriptures, and, and listen, there's been many great books and a lot of really good sermon series written on this, but what we get is the benefit of Isaiah the prophet in the same book. At the end of this book, in chapters 63 and 64, he also refers to the Lord as Father twice more. And so instead, we're going to camp out there and look at that. And so if you guys would turn to Isaiah 63, verses 15 through 17, and I'll give you a second to get there. Isaiah 63, 15 through 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, yeah. If you want a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Brandon will come and bring one of these by. We always love if you guys follow along with us. Don't feel weird about this. We pass them out every week, so just slip your hand up. Anthony will get this side. So don't, don't run up here like you all are. So, Okay. It says this, Isaiah 63, 15 and 16. Or in 17. Look down from heaven and see from your holy, beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Now, hear me, on, on face value, this first reading without some context and some study on this, it just sounds like, well, actually, Jesus sounds like a pretty terrible father, right? Like, he's hardened their hearts. He's distant. Where are you, Lord? I can't find you. We need you, but you're absent, right? And hear me, I think what we do is, is right, that we speak to the reality that sometimes we live in. That sometimes, even as Christians, as devoted followers, we're just like, God, where are you right now? I, sometimes I think, like, for us, like we, we look at the news, you study the world and culture, and you just see some of the brokenness and atrocity you see, and you say, God, like, where, where are you at in this one, man? Like, I would handle this differently, I sometimes think, and have to be reminded of who I am, and that, yeah, that differently would be far worse. Okay? But sometimes I think we experience that, and really what we do is we step into 
Right? The reality of the prophet at this time. Now, remember, we started all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9, and we've zoomed all the way to Isaiah chapter 63. Now, we think that this takes, uh, maybe depending on how long it takes you to read the book of Isaiah, maybe that's the distance between Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 63, but that's not the case. In fact, the distance is significant. What you've passed through, through Isaiah 9 and Isaiah, all the way to Isaiah 63, is like we've passed Assyrian occupation. In other words, Assyria has come in and taken over Israel. What we've passed through is Babylonian captivity that now they're on the other end of being taken from their land and brought into Babylon. And now a remnant has returned to Israel. That's where we pick it up in the story. So a lot has transpired from Isaiah 9 to Isaiah 63. And so here's what I find so interesting about why this prayer comes up. Because that's what this is. It's a prayer of repentance and movement towards God looking back on the last 200 years. And saying, what in the world? God, you, you took us through all this. Where were we in it? And, and, but but you're, you're supposed to be our father. This is supposed to be who you be, but I, I haven't experienced it, and I'm missing it, and I'm longing it. Now hear me, this is not meant to be, we don't look at, well, God, you have hardened and distanced yourself from us. We don't make theological doctrine off of that. Rather, we try and empathize with the reality of the situation. That they've seen difficulty and brokenness and calamity in their life, and they begin to look around and say, God, where have you been? which all of us on micro and macro levels can understand. And so, and so what God's doing, I think he's, he's trying to show himself clear in this moment as the people of God return back to him and say, no, no, but this is who you actually are. Okay? This is who you actually are. Now, I'm going to juxtapose that verse, those verses, with uh, chapter 64, verses 7 and 8. And so uh, let me read these to you. It's just a couple, like probably the next page over. Chapter 64, 78, he's praying again. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all at work. We are all the work of your hand. So we have to look at the prayer as a whole, right? That, that 63, that one, it's not by itself that this moves towards a God, you are in control. That even in the midst of all the craziness and all the brokenness and all the God, where are you? God, you're in control. You're the author and that you sovereignly work in my life and work in the life of our people. Now, now we can learn a lot about the Father as that's the language that's being used here by the prophet to say, Father, this is who you are. This, this is what we believe. And so what does that mean? But we clearly see in the contrast here, this is not something where they're saying, God, your character is to leave us. He's saying, man, this wasn't about your wrongdoing. It was about ours. It, it wasn't about like you messing up. It was about our iniquity that, that forced us out into the places that we've gone. And so, Father, we entreat you to be who you are to us and might we experience you once again as such. And so what are some things that we learn about God in the midst of this? I think one is that Jesus is always right. Now, some heavenly, or sorry, some earthly fathers are gonna tell their kids that they're always right, but that's just not true, okay? Like, if you're here and you're a father, right, you kind of have this mentality, oh, I always know what I'm doing. No, you don't, and neither do I. Jesus is always right. Amen? Like, he doesn't say anything wrong. He doesn't act wrong. He is always right in everything he does, in everything he says, in everything he tells that his people should follow. Jesus, the Father, is always right. 
in all the ways that maybe your father has told you wrong things. Jesus has never done that. Okay. What else do we learn? Um, the fourth one, that Jesus is by nature heartful and compassionate. We don't use that word heartful very, uh, very much, but it's the opposite of heartless. Okay? That his heart is always for people. And that he moves in compassion and empathy towards those very people as well. This thing is not great. Move it up here. Okay. He's heartful and compassionate. Now again, this, let's step into the story of Israel here. Now they've been warned by Isaiah. That's what we studied in the beginning of Isaiah. That's the context that was given the last couple of weeks. Guys, you better shape up. You're hurting yourselves. You're hurting others. You're disobeying God. You're distancing yourself from God. And if you don't, be careful. You're going to be taken over. Okay? And then they are. And I think God in the midst of that is like, you might think I'm not there, but I'm there. You might think that I don't still love you, that my heart is not still set upon you, that I don't, am, or I don't and am not compassionate with where you're at in this moment. Now, some of us, again, we sit in that this morning. We're just like, God, where are you? It's, it's broken and it's messed up. Or you look upon the world, it's broken and it's messed up. God, where are you? And he wants us to know, like, no, no, no. Not only is he present, but his heart is with you. That his compassion and empathy are with us like they were with Israel. What else do we learn? We learn that Jesus is not a tyrant or an abusive father. That he says, all right, you want to go that way? Go that way. You want to depart from me? Depart from me. You guys want to do things your way? Do things your way. He's not a tyrant that rules with this iron fist that says, listen, you need to only do what I say. Now, he's going to say, you should do what I say because that's the way life is best lived. But he's not tyrannical. You want this? Go ahead. See, a tyrant, what they do is they force their power upon those that are underneath them. Jesus is the all-powerful, sovereign, mighty God of the universe that we've already studied. So he could have forced humanity. He could have forced Israel. He could force any one of us. And he does not do these things. Because he's not a tyrant. Some of us have had that experience with fathers or with leaders or with those. Hear me, even because fatherhood, right, it goes far beyond just even our actual earthly fathers. That there are people in our lives that have fathered us well and some that have fathered us poorly. I played, I played for the same soccer coach for seven years, and he was a father figure to many of us. We had two teammates die while we were a team together for seven years in high school and club, and he was there and he was present. He was always visiting our homes and our families, getting to know us, showing us hard work, dedication, love, support. When his wife passed from cancer, we were all there with him. So we have these other people in our life, but hear me, so some of us have been fathered by voices and told things that are different and contrasting to what we learn about Jesus today. What else do we learn? We learn that he hears us and encourages us to talk to him honestly. Because, like, what I find so phenomenal is when you get to that prayer of repentance in Isaiah 63 and 64, initially, right, it doesn't paint God in a great light. Like, it doesn't make him sound like the most loving, compassionate person. But I don't think God is all that concerned with that. 
that he wants you and I to be able to discuss and to talk to him and to engage with him because he listens to the reality of life. It's not about just giving him platitudes. It's about being real with a God who is real. It's about talking to a father who will actually listen, that will kneel down before you and say, speak to me. Tell me what's on your heart. Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what you're struggling with. Tell me what you're fearful of. Tell me what you're feeling. And hear me, as, as a guy growing up, like that was, not, that, that was one thing that maybe wasn't always in the water, was talking about feelings and emotions. Like that was kind of like, eh, maybe we'll leave that one. Talk to your mother about that stuff, okay? Jesus invites us in to say, you know, just be honest. Talk to your dad. Tell me what's going on. Like, let's, let's be real. You hate the, the condition of the world. You hate the condition of your life. You don't know why this is happening. You think it's my fault. Say it all. One of the most beautiful things that we find in Scripture is a lament in Psalm 88. We've talked about it here before. What I love about the lament of Psalm 88 is there is no bow at the end. We even get a bow at the end of Psalm 64, or sorry, of Isaiah 64 here. We don't get a bow at the end of Psalm 88. In fact, it ends talking about darkness and distance. From beginning to end, it's God, where are you? This stinks, I hate it, and then darkness. And it's a psalm in Scripture. And what I love about that picture was that was God saying through the author, hey, I want you to write this. It will be canonized and thought of as my word to the people, and it makes me look terrible. Because God cares about you. Because he cares about the church. He cares about his people. So he's like, no, no, be honest. That's far more important. Like, I can handle the words. It's your heart struggling. That's what gets me. Okay. And so God allows us to talk to him. He hears us, encourages us. And the seventh one, he shapes us to make us better. Right? That he's always, right, we are the potter, okay? Or he is the potter and we are the clay that he's shaping us and molding us to make us beautiful. Like any potter trying to make something, unless you were me in senior year art class, your desire was to make something beautiful. Okay? And so, so what we believe here is that God, listen, as, as he's shaping, as he's molding, he's doing so to create something more beautiful than it presently is. That a father is meant to care for his children, to engage with his children, and live and teach and lead them unto a more beautiful vision than they can even see themselves. And this is what Jesus does for us. The eighth one, he knows us. Read in verse 16 again. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from old is your name. Listen, he knows you better than you know yourself. What a powerful reality. As we look across, listen, as we, let's talk about Flagstaff. When you look at Flagstaff now, I think the number, oh man, I believe it's 78%. 78% of kids that were born in, uh, in Flag, oh shoot. You know what? It might be Coconino County, but either Coconino County or Flagstaff, Arizona, which Flagstaff makes up a lot of it, right? Um, 78% of the kids born in this county or this city are born to unwed mothers, right? And a, and a lot of, a majority of those stories, the father isn't present or is present, but not all that present. So this is not just 
This is not just, hey, I guess let's talk about this as this far-off thing. This is saying there's kids that are growing up in our city that don't have a father. Right? And, and it goes far beyond just the city of Flagstaff. If you look at the national rates, there are kids growing up without fathers to share and to shepherd and to care and to watch over them and to do all these things that we see Jesus do as a good father should try and emulate, although fail, but still lean into the grace of God. And so then I think there becomes a responsibility for the church to step into the gap and to father well the fatherless. Like, church, this is not just, like, if you're here and maybe you have my story, like, maybe your story is you've had a really great dad, and that's allowed you to see Jesus really clearly in this realm, and you love that, and that's beautiful. Awesome. So maybe this isn't ministering to your heart, and they're like, yes, Jesus is better than I ever thought, which hopefully you're still getting some of that. I get some of that every time. But then, listen, that means there's, there's, there's a role to play here. That means that as Jesus has shown himself faithful to you, will we be faithful to the calling to be fathers to the fatherless? To engage in the areas in our communities and in our worlds where there is that brokenness and there are those who don't have that experience. That becomes, listen, that becomes responsibility for the house and the people of God to step into that gap. Um, the last one, um, he saves and redeems us. His name is Redeemer from old, is your name. See, like even thousands of years ago. This is 700 years before Jesus. Okay. I'll probably want to see, yeah, this is about 700 years before Jesus. They're already writing, hey, you're going to redeem this whole situation. And you're going to use the currency of your life to buy back which is broken to redeem and to save those of humanity that have rejected and abandoned you. That a, that a good father would lay down his life for his kids. That's exactly what we see Jesus do. These beautiful, beautiful realities. And so I mean, I'm going to run through the nine, just real quick. Just as a, I know I went through them fast, but here's the idea. I, I want us to see Jesus as father, as the perfect father. So Jesus, he's always fathering us. He's everlasting in every minute of every day, in every place, and for your whole life. He will not forsake. He will not abandon. He shows us God. He's always right and always knows best. He is by nature heartful and compassionate. He is not a tyrant nor abusive. He hears and encourages communication with him. He shapes us to make us a better version of ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and then he laid his life down to save and redeem us. He is a good and amazing father. Amen. So if all that's true, if that's the way he fathers us, and he's doing it right now, like this is not something we have to wait for. Like This is the way he desires to engage with his people now. What could that mean? What do we do? And my hope is, is that you guys would move towards worship. First and foremost, that your heart would move towards worship and thanksgiving. There's a beautiful story, and, and probably a lot of us in the room know it. And it's one that Jesus shares to talk about the kingdom of God. And he talks about a people who have abandoned, or a person that has abandoned his father to go away to do what he thought was best with his own life, only to return back and be embraced by him which is the story of Israel, no? A story of, hey, 
I'm your father. I want you. No thanks. We'll do our own thing. Oh, God, help us. Oh, okay, I'll help you because I'm a good father. Well, Father, you know what? Actually, we don't need you. We'll go do our own thing. We do our own thing. God, we need you. And over and over throughout the Old Testament, a continuous, nonstop cycle of God loves us. We don't need him. Oh, wait, we do. We come back and embrace, and we do it all over again. And then Jesus. And then Jesus comes to change some things. And he shares the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament. Talk about the coming kingdom of God, which is here and present right now, that you and I live in. And in that, in that parable, in that story, and if you don't know it, it is one of the most beautiful stories in all of literature and all of history. A son desiring to move on from his father's house goes to his father and says, you know what, father? Uh, I want to take my inheritance and I'd like to leave and go do my own thing, live my own life. I'm done living underneath your roof. And now what we know culturally is this is literally kind of a hope for his death. It's literally saying like, I I wish you were dead so I can just have my inheritance now. But the father says, fine, I'm not a tyrant. Take this and go. So he gives him the inheritance. The kid goes away. He runs to the city and he just goes wiling out. Spends all his money, lives, and then finds himself in desperation, laying in pig squalor. And he thinks to himself, man, my, my servants, or the servants of my father, those that tend to his home, they, they have a better life than I. They're, they're not laying in this. In fact, they're fed, they're taken care of, they have home shelter. Let me return to my father. And so he runs back. Right? And it says that as he approaches the front of the property, and that's kind of the idea, that it says when he is far off from the father. So enough where the father could see him at a distance, but not close enough because it says he was far away. The father sees this son returning. And what does this father do? He runs to his son. Right? He doesn't kind of just wait there, crossed on his throne, just hanging out waiting to then say, like, I told you so. He's not sitting there just waiting to shame the kid for all of the foolishness that he had walked into. No, he, he starts running to his son. And he embraces him. And he says, welcome home. Welcome, welcome, welcome back into the family. There's all sorts of other beautiful parts to the story, but I want us to just look at the heart of the Father. Because it's the same Father that fathers you right now. We use the word grace a lot in the church. I just wonder if we really got what it meant. I wonder if we really understood that every single day, We make decisions that go against him, his character, and his mission. And he comes to us running with open arms. Welcome back. That when he says that mercies are new every morning, when he tells us from the cross and he exclaims out, it is finished, when he says these things, do we realize the depth and the reality of them for our lives? Guys, you're free. Here's a telltale sign. We don't fully get it. 
is that tomorrow we wake up and we strive again to be justified by other things in this world. Because we don't know the Father's love the way that he's presented it. We think we have to strive and clamor for the things around us, the approval of our spouses, the approval of our bosses, the approval of our friends and community around us, the approval of our culture that they would say the right things about you and about me when Jesus has already said everything necessary and proved it on a cross. The beauty of the cross moment, okay? The most amazing piece is from the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Do you understand that the father forsook his son that never again would one of humanity have to be forsaken? That the father gave up his son, Jesus, his only begotten son, that he could be that everlasting father that we need. That Jesus willingly went to the cross to be forsaken by his Father so you and I would not have to be any longer. This is what Advent is about, is the King has arrived and done what you and I deserve to do, which was to pay the penalty for our sin and our brokenness. But because of the Father's love and everything we've learned about him, that doesn't happen because of Jesus. Because of a baby who was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. You and I breathe and live and act and try and follow the work that he's done. So as application, I, I think there's a few things. I think this type of stuff on face value, even as I was prepping it this week and over the last few weeks, it's just been this, yeah, I know all this stuff. Jesus is Heavenly Father. He fathers us. He's good. I don't think any one of those nine points blew you away as something you didn't already believe if you're in the church for a while. So what I think it requires is time and meditation. What I think it requires is for you to sit down before Jesus and to meditate on who he is. 45 minutes of me just kind of ranting up here about what some scriptures say, it's not going to be enough. If we want to know the Father, you got to spend time with the Father. If you want to know Jesus, you got to spend time with Jesus. If you want to know the Spirit, you got to spend time with the Spirit. Church, I've been increasingly convicted that in my life, I look back on my walk with God, whatever labels we want to put on it, relationship with God, and it is oftentimes based on a bunch of stuff I just know. I know this is who Jesus is. But do I know Jesus? And do you know Jesus? Like, do do you know Jesus? Or do you just know about him? Because what we're invited into is, is far greater than a whole bunch of bullet points in your head. I shared the story like multiple times here. It's just popping in my head again, so maybe I'll share it again. I'll wrap up. Um, and I shared it this week with some friends. Maybe that's why it's fresh in my mind. But it's just of, it's, it, it's a story of Bill Bright, right? And, and, and if, you've, if you're here and you heard it, great. And if you haven't, let me tell you again, or let me tell you. This guy, Bill Bright, is the founder of Campus State for Christ. I swear your kids are okay if that's your child. <laughs> we, we do our best. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's the story of Bill Bright 
founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. Back in the 70s, he was interviewed by like Rolling Stone magazine or one of the secular magazines, and they asked him some questions about Jesus and about his faith and about crew and about life, and that is just going on right now. Um, and they asked him all these questions, and the very first question they asked him, they said, Mr. Or Dr. Bright, they said, who is Jesus to you? And it's amazing because you can read the publication. And the answer that they have, right, you see in bold letters the question, who is Jesus to you? And you see his answer. It says B in parentheses, and it just has a bunch of dots for ellipses, for silence. And then in parentheses at the end, it says weeping. And that was it. That's how Bill Bright answered the question of who is Jesus is by tears and crying. Now, that's not prescriptive, that every time I ask you guys, hey, who's Jesus to you, that you need to start breaking down in tears. I know some of you, I couldn't force a tear out of you if I reached my hand in and pinched your tear duct. okay? (laughs) But there's something about what's going on in his heart right there that I'm going to tell you I just long for. Like, I desperately want to know Christ that way. I want to know him more than nine points that I think I can prove by Scripture. I want to know him in such a way that when I just think about my relationship with him, that it moves me to just, like, cheerful, sad, like, that's not right, cheerful, joyful tears. Because he's that for me. He's my father. When I think about my heavenly, my earthly father and everything he's done, like I told you, when that story, right, with what he, what he did when I preached my first sermon, that brings me to tears. To the stories where we constantly see Jesus interact in our life, do they bring us to tears? Because the work that he has done and is doing to prove his faithfulness to us, to prove his love to us, and to show us son, daughter, you're mine, you're justified, the striving is over, you're free, Live in my family. That's my hope for this whole sermon. And we won't get there if what I just said is all we do. Do you guys want to know Jesus? Spend time with Jesus. It's not tricky. He's better than the other things that will be offered in your day. I guarantee it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a father to us. That you've proven your care and desire for us time in and time over. And so God, even as we, as we pray together as a family right now, I just, I just even pray for our minds. like this, These things that we so easily mentally ascend to know to be true, that God, we would not stop there. We'd not even just get stuck there, but we would really move towards just being with you. So Lord, I remind us all, I remind my own heart, God, that you are not distant, you're not far off, that God, you are here right now. God, we don't need to call you or entreat you to show up. God, I just pray that your presence would manifest itself in ways that would move our hearts and our minds, God, to worship 
to praise and to obedience. God, I pray that you would, man, I, this, even just very practically, God, I want to pray for all those here and for my own heart, my own life, God, that you would um, give us wisdom, give us vision, God, how to um, orchestrate life in light of all the demands, God, that come with it, that, Lord, first and foremost would be being with you and spending time with our Father. Because you are not, you're not distant. You're always there, ready to spend time with your children. And so, Jesus, we thank you for that reality. We pray, God, blessings, God, on your people, that we'd be faithful to what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.